I invite you to turn in your uh, copy of God's Word to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, the sixth chapter. While you're making your way to Romans 6, I want you to picture two images, two images in, in your own mind. The first image is this. If, if you are a Christian, I want you to picture in your mind a personal struggle with sin in your life. A personal struggle with sin. And not just any sin, but a, but a sin that you frequently battle and perhaps that you return to over and over. Something that often entangles you and seems to, to wrap you up. Maybe it is a sinful anger, perhaps it's an unwillingness to forgive or maybe sinful worry. It could be drunkenness or the abuse of some other substance, perhaps it's sexual lust. Or maybe it is greed or envy, maybe lying or deceit. I want you to just get that struggle in, in, in your mind. Uh, and then I want you to picture also in your mind a young girl, a young girl named Marika. I want to tell you a little bit about her. She, she was one of a massive population of girls that are referred to as the Natashas, a term that reflects the national origins of hundreds of thousands of girls who have been duped into slavery of the harshest kind, preying upon the often poor and desperate condition of young ladies in the former Eastern Bloc countries, slave traders or recruiters promise a new life in the West with jobs as nannies or as actresses, and in some cases even models in glamorous locations. And despite the barrage of warnings on the TV and on radio and and on the billboards in those countries about these slave traders, thousands and thousands of young women have taken the bait. But the promise of freedom has become a nightmare of slavery to the highest bidder. Marika was one such girl that took the bait when a, a lady in a recruit, recruitment agency in her hometown in the Ukraine had spoken to her enthusiastically about the job that she had arranged for her. It was a stint uh, as a waitress in Tel Aviv. Of course, uh, Marika was apprehensive because she had heard about the other women being lured away to jobs that didn't exist. But the recruiter swore up and down that this was a legitimate position. And Marika really was, she was a perfect target. Her mother was very sick. Her father was uh, a drunkard. He was unemployed. Her two younger sisters were wasting away from malnutrition. Marika felt that this job offer was her only chance to make things better, and so she accepted the offer. Unfortunately, after landing in Cairo, where she was told that they would be traveling by land to Tel Aviv, she was placed in the back seat of a Jeep with three other young ladies, just like her. Her identification papers were stolen, and she was handed over to her new owner, a pimp that she was to call Master. Marika and the other girls were told that they had been purchased for $10,000 apiece, and that they would have to work for their master until they had paid off a $20,000 debt. That very night, they would begin servicing the master's clients, and any attempt to escape or refusal to participate 
would result in swift and painful punishment and possibly even death. Marika was now a slave, and sadly, just one of many in the same situation. They've been promised a new life, they've been promised wealth, freedom, and happiness, but what they got was enslavement. They've lost their identities and often been branded with the name of their master. They've lost their reputations and fear that they can never go home for shame. They've lost their innocence and aren't sure that they even deserve to return home. Sometimes they are traded from master to master, thinking that perhaps this time they will be set free, but each time they are confirmed in their thinking that death is the only way out. And once they are no longer profitable, this is sometimes what their masters will give them if the girls don't end their own lives themselves. But every now and then, something Miraculous happens, the impossible happens, and a rescue occurs. And girls like Marika, who have been trapped in this hellish slavery, are set free, and they have a new life. But what they discover, and and what the people who work with them discover, is that slavery is more than just physical bondage. It also brings along with it a mentality a mentality whose bonds are not so easy to break. And so while these girls, the ones that are rescued, even though they they are truly free, it normally takes a a reprogramming of sorts, a reprogramming of, of, of the mind and of the heart before these girls can actually live as free. They need to hear the truth about themselves. They... They need to hear the truth about their new set of circumstances, and, and they have to believe it. And as Christians, sometimes, honestly, we're no different from those girls that have been liberated. We have believed in Jesus, we have been saved, but we find ourselves stuck with a slave's mentality. Think about that struggle with sin in your life as a believer, and especially those times when you frequently stumble and fail to trust and obey Christ in the same way over and over and over again. Could it be that although you have been set free from sin, that you are still living like you are a slave to sin? And is it possible that after thinking like a slave to sin for so long before you were saved that when you see old slave masters, spiritually speaking, that you often bow in fear and obey their commands? And I would say absolutely. Absolutely that's possible. And Romans 6 can really help us with this problem, this issue, because all of us who are followers of Christ have done this. Even though we have been set free from sin at some point or another, we have all been tempted to think and to live like we are still slaves to it. Now, as many of you know, this particular letter penned by the Apostle Paul is at least in one sense a very rich, uh, a systematic explanation, exposition of what Paul refers to in chapter 1, verse 1. And also in chapter 15, verse 16, as the gospel of God. The book of Romans is about 
the gospel of God, the good news from God. And this good news from God is that hope-filled message that the very thing that God demands from sinners, which is perfection and absolute righteousness, that God himself has provided for sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his perfect and righteous Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the answer to the life and death question. How does God save sinners? For 16 chapters, Paul unpacks in detail various aspects of the gospel, including its substance, its foundation, uh, its benefits, and its implications. In chapters 1, 2, and the first half of chapter 3, the whole world composed of both Jews and Gentiles, the whole world is shown to be condemned and lost in sin. And then picking up at the the second half of chapter 3 into chapters 4 and 5, condemned sinners are presented as justified and declared righteous before God, reconciled to God if they believe on Jesus Christ. When we come to chapters 6 and 7, Paul begins to deal with the bearing of justification by grace upon our lives as Christians. And he carefully explains God's method of sanctification, the process by which we as believers are being made holy in our practice and being conformed into the image of Christ in our daily lives. Please follow along as I read just the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of or for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So here's the flow of up to this point in in, in the letter. Paul has been talking about the gracious character of salvation in Christ. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins, God sent His Son to overcome the curse of the law on our behalf. And through faith in Christ and not by our works, we are saved from the wrath of God. And what Paul does at the beginning of Romans 6 is respond to a misunderstanding of grace. 
For instance, you'll notice what he says back in the previous chapter, chapter 5, verse 20. Now, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, literally to, to the point of overflowing. So the misunderstanding of grace goes like this. If, if we are truly saved by grace, apart from any works, and if what Paul pointedly states in this verse is true, that no matter how much we sin, grace always supersedes above it, then the question naturally arises, if this is true, then how would I as a Christian get more grace? The answer seemed, seems to be, based upon this statement in verse 20, that that I should sin more. In chapter 6, Paul clears this issue up and says, no. As believers, you must live lives that are holy to the Lord. And he doesn't just call you to live holy lives. He, he also makes the point that you have the power to live holy lives. So there is, there is powerful hope in these verses. And there are very practical principles as well, very practical principles in these verses that will help, help you and they'll help me in, in our daily walk with Christ and in our ongoing struggle with temptation and sin. And I want to look at these very practical principles this, this morning. Uh, three principles that provide for us a biblical strategy for change and growth in our Christian lives. And the first principle is simply this, that there are facts that you must know. There are facts you must know as a Christian. And these facts are sort of unfolded for us and explained in these first 10 verses of Romans 6. In verse 1, Paul introduces the issue. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin or to remain in sin or to persist in sin that grace may abound or increase? Of course, Paul was not speaking of a believer's occasional falling into sin as every Christian does at times because of the weakness and imperfection of the flesh, but rather Paul was speaking of intentional, willful sinning as an established pattern of life. So, I mean, think about this. Before a person is saved, sin cannot be anything but the established way of life for him or her because sin, at best, taints everything that they do. On the other hand, the believer has no excuse to continue habitually in sin. So how does Paul answer the question? Well, he answers the question with an expression in, in the Greek that, that he uses 14 times in his epistles, 10 times in Romans alone, a phrase that, that he uses often to separate truth from error. Verse 2, by no means, God forbid, uh, uh, may it never be, certainly not. These are all various ways that, that the um, translators translate this, this phrase. It's a, it's a straightforward remark for sure, but it's... It's, it's, not a, it's not a bitter scolding. Uh, this is Paul unpacking the gospel. This is Paul teaching. This is Paul instructing and caring like a nursing mother takes care of her own children. And, and as a mother would want her children to know and even possess and to act on the truth, so Paul wants that 
for the Roman church. Paul doesn't want the church in Rome to be in error over such a critical area of truth as sin and grace. And so he gets their attention, and then he follows with the answer that he spends the rest of the chapter really exploring at length. And the tenses of the two verbs in the next part of the verse explain Paul's answer clearly. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So we died to sin. This is past action, a single completed act. We died to sin. Therefore, how can we still live in it? Future tense, ongoing, repeated action in the future. We died to sin, therefore, how can we still live in it? The idea that a Christian can continue to live habitually in sin, we, we know this to be unbiblical. First John chapter 3, verse 9, the Apostle John says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But, it, but it's more than that. It's not, it's not simply unbiblical. It's, in some ways, it's, it's illogical. It's irrational. And it's not merely that you as a Christian should not continue to live in the realm and the dimension of sin, but that you cannot continue to live this way. You cannot continue to live this way. Why? Because when you trusted Christ, when you, when you, when you believed on Christ, you died to sin. You died to sin. And this is the first fact that you must know and understand, that you died to sin in union with Christ's death. You died to sin in union with Christ's death. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So Paul brings up our baptism, and we know that baptism uniquely represents identification. So as believers, we have been baptized into Christ. We have permanently been immersed into him so as to be made one with him. And we are not only identified with him, but by extension, we are identified with him specifically in his death and his resurrection. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This was one of the aims of Jesus' act of obedience in going to the cross and his subsequent resurrection, to provide a new life, to provide a new life for all who would by faith identify with him and his act of obedience. And this is God's purpose for our union with Christ, that we would live a new life, a life that is new in its quality, a life that is new in in its character. And we walk in newness of life, not only because we participate in Christ's death and burial, but also because we participate in his resurrection. And this is the second fact that you must know. You are raised to life in union with Christ's life. And this is Paul's important point, that in the economy of the Christian life, you cannot separate death from life. One necessarily leads to to the other, and 
Jesus' resurrection life leads to our resurrection life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, we know that we are still awaiting the physical resurrection of our earthly bodies. But what Paul is telling us here is that because of our union with Christ, the power of his resurrection has already become ours and we already experience its impact in that we have power in the present to live the new life. In other words, you don't have to wait until Christ returns. You don't have to wait until he returns to begin to live the new life. You have the power to live that life right now. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you right now, even when you fail. Now, this, this ought to give you hope in your, in your battle against sin because it's very easy to get discouraged when you say things like, I'm never going to do that again. And then it's just a matter of time and you end up doing it. Or in some cases, you may say, I'm going to start doing that specific good thing. And then very quickly, you fail at that commitment. And, and so and what happens in these situations is we, we, we deduce from, from these experiences that sin cannot be conquered. And that God is not the most powerful ruler in the universe. But your past experience with fighting sin and my past experience with fighting sin is not the determining factor as to whether or not we have the power to overcome sin. Paul says, there is a power at work in you that raised Jesus from the dead and whose purpose is to sanctify you and to deliver you from every last inkling of sin until you shall be presented spotless and blameless on the last day. God's purpose and power in you and for you cannot be frustrated. If Jesus is risen, then sin cannot be the most powerful force in the universe. And if Jesus is risen you are no longer under the dominion of sin. But you are under the dominion of another power that not even sin can frustrate. And this brings us to the third fact that you must know. You are free from sin. You are free from sin. The Apostle Paul, now he grows more definitive and vivid in expressing this sin-destroying power of our union with Christ. Verse 6, we know that, or knowing this, that our old self, and our old self is simply who we were in Adam. It's, it's all of that that we were in, in our unregenerate, unredeemed condition. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Versus the King James says that we would no longer, we would not serve sin, or the New King James, no longer be slaves of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his rendering of this verse, he says this, Do not go on living as if you were still that old man. Because that old man has died. Do not go on living as if he were still there. Paul said it this way in Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then a somewhat parallel passage over in Colossians, Paul Paul clearly states that a believer's putting off the old self is something that has already and irreversibly been accomplished. Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And not only has your old self been crucified, but the body of sin has been, as he says, brought to nothing, which literally means that it has been rendered inoperative or ineffective, or you could say say it this way, that the body of sin can no longer dominate you. And as a result of all of this, Paul says, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You are no longer in bondage to sin. On what grounds? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. You have been justified by the blood of Christ. You have been declared righteous in spite of your sins. You have been declared free to go. And you have been liberated not only from the guilt and the penalty of your sins, but from the control of and the obligation to sin. Simply put, you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. Of course, the capacity for sin, the capacity for us to sin still still remains... But our old life does not. Uh, For instance, this Ephesians 2. That that life that Paul describes in Ephesians 2, those first three verses. The life of trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. By which we lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That life died with Christ. Christ. The life that we lived, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, as the sexual immoral, the idolaters. The life that we lived as adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. That life died with Christ. That's why Paul can say in that same passage, such were some of you, but you were washed sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is a fact. As a Christian, you don't have to sin. 
Think about it this way. A freed slave can stand directly in the presence of his or her former master, look that master in the eye, and ignore every command. Now, is there a temptation based on history or or based on precedent to ask with with fear and trepidation how high when, when when the former master says jump? Well, of course. Of course there's a temptation because old old habits die hard. But here's the thing. There is no obligation to jump. And there is no obligation to ask how high. In fact, there is complete freedom to turn and walk away. Listen, you may be struggling with sin in your life. And it may feel like a hopeless struggle. But rest assured that through your union with Christ, the power source of sin has been broken. It no longer rules over you because you are no longer its slave. The enslaved man is dead. You died with Christ and through that death, You have been set free from the realm, the reign, the rule, and the condemnation of sin. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Again, we know, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death is no longer a master. It doesn't have mastery over him. For the death, verse 10, he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This is it. Jesus defeated the twin powers of sin and death. He achieved a victory that will never need repeating. He died in one completed act, but he lives actively and continuously to God. And this is exactly what we were free to do. To live with Jesus and to live to the glory of God. To live fully consistent lives, lives that are consistent with the holiness of God. We have died to sin. We have been raised to life. We are free from sin. Even if we don't realize it. We're still free. Sin has no mastery over us. Death has no mastery over us. And it's critical that we know these facts. But knowing them is not enough. Because we may know these things and yet still have a slave mentality. If you're going to grow and change in your Christian life, you have to do more than know these truths You have to believe these truths. You have to believe them. Because there aren't just facts to know. There is a faith that you must exercise. There is a faith that you must exercise. Now, it's it's interesting what happens when we get to verse 11. Uh, Up to this point, Paul has just essentially been giving us a description of reality. Giving us the facts. And describing the situation in these first 10 verses. But in verses 11 to 14, the emphasis 
it shifts from the indicative to the imperative. And in these final verses, Paul moves to some very explicit exhortations. In fact, there are four imperative verbs, four commands, and the first one is found in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and, you say, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also must consider. Logitsomai is the word. In the NIV, it's translated as count. In the King James, they translate it as reckon. You must also reckon yourselves, count yourselves as dead to sin. It's actually used by Paul, the same term. It's used in many places, but in Romans 4, verses 1 to 8, uh, it's, it's used of God counting as righteous those who believe his promise. And essentially, this term, logitsomai, says that words have meaning. Words have meaning. For example, if God says that those who have died and have been raised with Christ are dead to sin, they are dead to sin. So, so Paul's simply making the point here that this is not a word game, and this, and this is not a matter of positive thinking. Growing in the Christian life and dealing with sin and temptation is a matter of renewing your mind and conforming your mind to the truth from God's perspective. In other words, if you want to use Jesus' transforming grace, you have to do something that is so basic that many people overlook it. You have to believe it. You have to believe it. You have to believe in His grace to change you. You have to believe that in Christ, you have the power to change. You have to believe that you do not have to sin. You have to believe that you are not what you used to be. You have to believe that despite your present conflict with sin, you are no longer under sin's tyranny. And you will never again be under sin's tyranny. You have to believe these facts every day. And lay hold of them every day in order to defeat sin. So it it begins with knowing the truth. But you must go on to fully affirm the truth. And have confidence that it is true. Because until you accept the truth... That Christ has broken the power of sin over your life. You cannot live victoriously. Because deep down in your heart. You don't think it's possible. So here's what you must do. You must know the facts. Of these first ten verses. But rather than considering your sin, we spend a lot of time considering our sin, rather than doing that, we're to count, consider, reckon. We're to instead turn our minds toward what Christ has done, His death, His resurrection, and the implications of all of that for our lives. So you know the facts, but then by faith, You are to count yourself dead to sin 
and alive to God. And only when you aim your mind at these truths will you be able to effectively exercise your will successfully against sin and by God's power prevent its reign in your mortal body. Well, finally, there is a fight that you must engage in. There is a fight that you must engage in. Because of who you are in Christ, you can fight. And if you, if you really know the facts and you actually believe them to be true, you will fight. You will fight. And notice what Paul says about the fight, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, or so that you obey its, its lusts. Again, sin, sin doesn't have the right to reign, and so Paul says, don't allow it to reign. It doesn't have the right to do that, so don't allow it to do that. Sin doesn't have the power to control you unless you choose to obey it. And because our body is the the apparatus by which all of the sins of the heart become facts of outward life, and because because our mortal body is still subject to sin, Paul continues in verse 13, do not present or yield or go on presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness or wickedness or injustice, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, in other words, as the fruit of that reality, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, when, when Paul uses this term, do, when he says do not present, it usually brings the language of sacrifice and worship quickly to the mind. It's actually, it's the word we find in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But there's another interesting use of this word, and it's, in, it's over in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. And you're familiar with this, this uh, story of when, when uh, this event, when the crowd of soldiers and officers and the elders come to arrest Jesus in the garden. And Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Christ tells him to put his sword away. And then he makes this statement. He says that if needed the Father would at once send Him, there's our term, or present to Him more than 12 legions of angels. In other words, His Father would provide, or we might say it this way, put at His disposal more than 60,000 angels. And this is what we must do in our lives when, when lust for control comes knocking, uh, when lust to indulge in overeating calls, when lust to take revenge calls, when, when lust to worship pleasure comes calling, or when lust to gain the approval of men calls 
We have to stop presenting our faculties to sin. We have to stop turning our weapons over to the enemy. But that's not all. We have to replace this habit of yielding our members to sin with a better one. We have to consciously place ourselves at the disposal of our true master and Lord, King Jesus. We have to enlist all of our capacities to serve him for the purpose of righteousness. This is our fight. A fight to put on obedience. A fight to put on Christ. A fight to to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And this needs to be your strategy for change and growth. This is your strategy for overcoming sin. Know the facts. Then reckon them to be true in your life by faith. In other words, get your mindset right. And then exercise your will and engage in the fight. Presenting yourselves wholly to God. And you have to do all three to be successful. All three of these to be successful. Well, Paul closes this section in verse 14 with with actually another indicative, with a declaration that really undergirds the imperatives in the previous verses. Verse 14, For sin will have no dominion. The New American Standard says, Shall not be master over you, since you are not under law but under grace. I mean, what what a powerful promise. What a wonderful promise. The promise that sin as an alien power will not rule over you. If you belong to Jesus, the mastery of sin has been broken. And the reason why sin will not exercise its tyranny over you or over me is because we are not under law but under grace. Because to be under law is to be under its claim to entire obedience. Absolute obedience, which because we have violated the law means to be under the curse of the law. And for those under the law, sin is the master because the law has no power to enable a person to resist sin. To be under law is to be shut up under an inability to keep it and consequently to be the helpless slave of sin. Now, we know the law is holy. Uh, the, 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 the law is righteous and good. In fact, Paul would say this over in, in the next chapter, in verse 12, cha- chapter 7. And the law does an excellent job of pointing out failure. But it cannot break either sin's penalty or sin's power. It can rebuke, it can restrain, it can condemn, but it can never save you. And it can never empower you to keep from failing. Only one thing can accomplish that. Redeeming grace. To be under the glorious canopy of grace is to have the curse of the law completely lifted from off of us. To become the righteousness of God in Christ. To have the power of sin decisively broken. To be liberated from the power of sin and to be transferred into the realm of righteousness. To be led by and empowered by the Spirit of God. To be alive to God. 
Grace involves more than the forgiveness of sins. It also involves a transfer of lordship so that believers are no longer under the tyranny of sin. Grace inevitably involves a change of masters. And it so transforms a person that he or she desires the fruit of holiness. By grace, God nails our sin debt to the cross of Jesus and satisfies its demands. But God's redeeming grace also gives us strength to live in new ways and changes us so that we can be like him in his purity and his love. So, Christian brother or sister, what sin do you frequently battle? What is that life-entangling sin in your life? Do you give into depression? Do you indulge in pornography? Do you turn to drugs or other substances? Do you fail to demonstrate integrity, lying to others in your life? Is there a sin in your life that you willingly commit because you are counting on God's grace to forgive you? Or do you ever think to yourself concerning a particular sin in your life, I can't help myself. I can't help myself. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. You are free. Don't be like the Natashas of the world who may actually be rescued from a life of slavery, but who still have a slave mentality. Start thinking and living like a free man. Maintain your liberty against the dethroned tyrant of sin. And when you do stray, when you stray in your heart, when you stray in your conduct, when you fail in the battle, don't punish and condemn yourself. I mean, that only perpetuates the sinful self-centeredness that led you to disobey in the first place. Rather, talk to God with prayers of confession Talk to him about what you did and what you wanted and what you desired and what you were thinking. Ask him to forgive and to cleanse you. Repent and ask God for the specific grace to live differently. And always remember, Jesus' grace to change you is stronger than sin's power to destroy you. Jesus' grace to change you is stronger than sin's power to to destroy you. What if you're here today and you don't know Christ? Well, to, to not be in Christ is to be a slave of sin. To be under the yoke of the law, to be condemned. In fact, the Bible teaches that every person apart from Jesus is foolish. Titus 3, disobedient, led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The reality is, Bob Dylan was right. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. But you only have two options. You will either trust in Christ, serve God, and produce holiness that ultimately ends in eternal life, or you will serve the devil and sin, which will produce more sin and end in death. Don't be duped by a cruel slave master living a life filled with empty promises 
never performing quite enough, no hope, no joy, no peace. If this describes you, listen, it's the gospel. It's the good news. There's good news. There is a master who has laid his life down for sinners just like you. He gave himself up to death in order to give you life. His name is Jesus Christ. His claims are true. His nature is goodness. And his promises never fail. And you may say, listen, Joel, I've done too much. I've done too much. I have sinned way too long. Uh, You don't understand. My sin is too great. May I remind you, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for this time of worship and thank you for the privilege we have to study your word. Lord, thank you for the fellowship of believers. Thank you for this body. And thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word and how it penetrates and pierces our hearts. And Lord, as we think about our own struggles in in life, in the Christian life, the temptations that we face and the many times that we fail, we must confess, Lord, that sometimes we simply fail and stumble because we're ignorant of the truth. We just, we don't know what you have said in your word. And at other times, Lord, we know it, we know the facts, but we just simply don't believe them. We don't reckon them to be true in our own lives. We, we believe all of the lies and we call all of your promises into question and in some situations, Lord, we, we just simply sit back. We, we, don't, we don't fight. We don't engage. We don't strive. We don't follow through in our lives and actually submit to you and obey you and follow your commands. We're passive, waiting for you, Lord, to do something in us that you've asked us to do. You asked us and commanded us to yield our members as instruments for righteousness. So, Lord, for these things, we, we confess these things. And, Lord, our prayer is that this message and, Lord, that this passage in Romans 6 would help to reset and recalibrate our own thinking in our hearts and our minds today. And that, Lord, as we leave, that we would leave as those who are free, that we would understand our freedom from sin And that we would live as those who are alive to God. Dead to sin, but alive to God. And Lord, for anyone who's here in our service that might not know you or that's lost, I pray that, Lord, they would feel the weight of their sin, that they would be convicted in their their hearts by your Spirit, and that, Lord, they would look to Jesus Christ and that they would see Christ for who he is, a gracious and merciful and good master. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.